This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by Austin-based design consultancy Argo Design that gave us visions of the future like the Ambulance Drone, Wire One, the Echo Fresh Fridge, and Amazon Bin. Argo is shaping and designing for the new computing paradigm being ushered in by artificial intelligence. Learn more about Argo at argodesign.com. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Mark Rolston. He's the co-founder and chief creative officer of Argo Design. He's a renowned designer with a 25-year career of creating for the world's largest and most innovative companies. An early pioneer of software user experience, Mark helped forge the disciplines around user interface design and mobile platforms. A veteran design leader, innovator, and patent holder, he is one of Fast Company's most creative people, and he was nominated as Fast Company's world's greatest designer in 2014. Welcome to the show, Mark. Yeah, welcome. Thanks. So I want to start off with my kind of um, question I ask everybody, and, and so far no two answers have been the same. What is artificial intelligence? Oh God, what is AI? Big question. Okay. Um, so I think it's probably easy to start with what AI isn't, especially given all the attention it gets right now. Um, certainly every time the topic AI comes up for me, especially with, um, let's say my family, uh, around me, um, the expectation is that it's somehow on the level of, um, another, a fully living, breathing person, right? And, and that level of cognition. Uh, and I think that every time we want to talk about AI, when we go immediately to that, that idea of a fully competent uh, mind, uh, we really lose sight of what AI is and what it's valuable at. I also think in terms of um, so much marketing that's going on where everyone wants to place AI at the front of their product say that it's powered by AI. And I think um, while the world's you know, software has gotten a lot better in terms of applying rich data, let's say like historical behavior data, you know, if you continue to rent movies of this type, then maybe you'd like this next movie, um, or rich algorithms, um, understanding how to optimize, let's say like a path home. Um, those things have um, made software a lot more quote intelligent but those things are not AI. Um, and so for me, I, I think of it as a spectrum um, of capabilities that transcend that basic sort of rich data and algorithmic intelligence that software has to where they can take a, uh, AI can take a cognitive, cognitively complex situation that involves context, um, that involves ongoing computational value, meaning it's not simply answering algorithmically or uh, data-based uh, 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 queries immediately, but it can understand something over the course of time. Let's say like um, a habit that somebody has of doing something or a, a large set of medical records, um, be able to resolve that, resolve that against immediate context um, and come up with a conclusion. I think one of the things um, anecdotally that I tend to uh, help people um, get away from the idea of the sort of Terminator notion of AI or the um, you know, 2001's HAL notion of AI is to ask them to liken it to a two-year-old in intelligence or maybe even a one-year-old, except that this one-year-old 
has, uh, let's say, every medical record um, in a tri-state area available to it and can sift through it and find consistent um, cases and conditions uh, and give you back an answer. Or it can understand every um, stock fluctuation for a particular stock or industry instantaneously and give you some thoughtful uh, ideas about that. It's still on, on in other bases, maybe a complete idiot. It can't tie its own shoes. Um, it still, it still wets the bed. It's still a, an un, a, a very simple system. Um, and so I think that helps uh, me, helps others sort of get away from the idea of um, talking about AI in general terms. Certainly one day we'll get to general AI. Um, I, I expect we will. But right now, to talk about that's incredibly distracting from some of the real practical things that are happening uh, in AI. Well, help me understand a distinction you're making. So you, you explicitly said the program that guides my car to where I'm going, routing, mm -hmm. isn't artificial intelligence, even though it knows the context of where I am, it might have a, a real-time traffic feed and all of that. And yet, presumably, you think something like IBM Watson, which is able to um, you know, go through a bunch of cancer file, uh, cancer journals and recommend treatments for different kinds of cancer is a form of artificial intelligence. So assuming that that is the case, what's the, what's the, the essential difference between what's going on in those two cases? Uh, I think it's just a level of overall complexity and the ability to apply that, um, those subsystems to other problems. You know, a mapping system is, maybe algorithmically rich, but it's really just applied to one problem. Now, of course, if you used Watson to apply um, to a mapping problem, then, then you, we might call that AI. I think it gets, it gets academic, but it, uh, I'd say the simple answer to your question is it's a level of richness and um, the sophistication and the complexity of the data sets and the models we're, we're bringing to the problem. And so you use the phrase uh, that it, it understands something over time mm -hmm. about the artificial intelligence. Is that useful to Because do you actually think the computer, quote, understands anything? Oh, I know. Uh, we use that, sorry, and we're going to use that language um, because it's, it's readily at hand and it's a, it's a frame of human understanding. But no, of course, it doesn't understand it. It's just it's able to prepare a set of variables um, that it can apply uh, further in its um, course of, quote, thinking. But, of course, thinking is processing, right, in, in this case. Um, so, so, no, it doesn't understand um, any more than a bug understands um, the greater world around it. It's, it just can see in front of it. Uh, so. so do you think, and, and we're going to get out of the definitional thing here, but it, it's really telling to me in the sense that, so do you think artificial intelligence, the word artificial means that it's like artificial turf. It's not really grass. It looks like it. So it's not really intelligent. It's just, well, let's, yeah. So, so this has been an interesting line of questioning and I'm probably terrible at answering this, but um, I think it's fun to maybe step outside of the sort of technical boundary and try and start from a philosophical angle the other way and break down the notion of intelligence, given the choice of the phrase artificial intelligence. And I do believe very much that human intelligence is, while on 
a great many orders more complex, it is no more different than the basic processing systems we're discussing. So in that sense, yeah, the term is perfectly appropriate. Yet on a conversational basis, it's very distracting to talk about it that way, right? So actually in our studio uh, and with uh, my current active client in this space, we really talk about it as a cognitive system. And that I know in a lot of ways it's just wordsmithing, but it helps break away from the burdensome um, history of the term artificial intelligence and its greater philosophical demands put on the term. So for us, a cognitive system has some of the basic tenets of a thinking process, namely that it's complex in its ability to process information um, and it is able to resolve questions over time. Um, and th those two are sort of most interesting factors that make it transcend normal software. But the idea that human intelligence and machine intelligence, what I, what I think I just heard you say is they are the same type of, they are the same substance as it were. The, the machine intelligence yeah, is just one, so. one, one quintillionth as much as human right now. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. In, in fact, um, there's some interesting, uh, we came across an idea that, that lends itself to this line of thinking. Um, and certainly if you're religious or uh, if you're a philosopher, it, it's easy to, to find this a repulsive notion. But um, we came across an idea um, called the bicameral mind. Of right? course. By, uh, yes. Yes, bicameralism. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting idea, just, just the notion. Just that, or, yeah, that, that, that the brain, uh, we didn't used to be conscious 3,000 years ago that the brain used to one half of it spoke to the other, which we perceived as uh, the voice of God. And then over time they merged, we became conscious. And then we felt we were lacking something that we forgot that the gods no longer spoke to us. And therefore we created oracles and prayer and all of these ways to try to reclaim that. And I guess the people that believe that talk about Homer that didn't have introspection and all of that. So, so yeah. just for frame for framing it for the listener, but go ahead with your, yeah, so, so, yeah, so there's this historical idea of bicameralism where we heard voices in our head and those voices we attributed to external forces, right? It shows how fragile the, the mind is, first of all, and that's why I find it applicable to this question. It shows how the mind isn't um, sort of perfect, immutable structure. It, it hears itself and, and, uh, and might mistake it for something else, whole cloth, and... Um, Today, uh, the, by the way, the reason the topic came up for us was not in, uh, for this philosophical reason, but because we are seeing a sort of a new bicameralism emerge. And it's highly connected to this question of AI, but it's somewhat a digression, but I'll share it with anyway, which is um, today we're experiencing digital systems that are in increasingly sophisticated ways thinking for us. Um, they're helping us get home. They're helping advise us on uh, who to call right now and what to do right now and uh, where that thing is. I forgot where it was. And, and you know, uh, I can ask Siri or Alexa just about anything. So why remember uh, so many things that I used to have to remember? In any case, I have this sort of external mind now. And just like historically, we had this idea that that other voice was not really our own. 
these digital systems that are extensions of us. They're like Facebook. They have deep properties that we help to imbue them with um, about us. We think of them as very external forces right now. They are Facebook. Um, they are Siri. Uh, yet increasingly we depend on them in the same way that we depend on our own internal conscience, our own internal voices. And eventually, I think much like um, we became to be, we became to have a unified mind, um, the digital systems that we depend on, and largely we are talking about these intelligent systems, these artificial intelligence uh, assistants that uh, are emerging around us for everything, will become one with us. And I don't mean that in some sci-fi way. I mean in the sense that when we think about our identity, who am I and how smart am I? What am I best at? What do I know the most of? Um, am I funny? Am I clever? Am I witty? Anything like that um, will be inseparably connected to those digital systems that we tie to us, that we use on a frequent basis. And we'll be unable to judge ourselves in any sort of kind of immutable way of flesh and blood. It'll be as this new joined, you know, cyber creature. So to me, that again spells out more and more that the idea of our own cognition, our own sort of idea of what does it mean to be intelligent as a human, sort of natural intelligence, isn't that magically different. It is entwined with um, uh, not only the digital systems we subscribe to, but um, these digital systems are drawing on the same uh, underlying basis of decision-making and context forming and uh, so like you said, they're just one quintillionth these level of sophistication. But it seems to me that if you have a computer and you put a sensor on it that can detect temperature, and then yeah. you, um, you program it to play a wave file of somebody screaming if that sensor ever hits 500 degrees, and then you hold a match to the sensor, hits 500 degrees, computer starts screaming, and then you, you, the computer can sense the temperature in the sense that it can measure the temperature, I guess is the better way to say it. It can't actually sense it. It can measure the temperature. With the, with the human, you put a match on a human's finger and they scream. There's something different going on. A human's experiencing the world. And human intelligence arguably comes from that, whereas a machine doesn't have any experience of the world and therefore uh, seems yeah. to be a, an entirely different thing. But you just described a dirty shortcut to all of the underlying context and um, calculations that go on in the human mind before that scream. You just plug the scream right into the sensor. Um, and while you could, uh, let's say if we try and break down the human system, there was an initial sensor, the, the skin, and there was the initial output design, the scream. Um, there were many, many more computations. And while, yeah, the two external um, net results were the same between the two systems, you just obfuscated or, or ignored all of the other things that might cause a different, like for example, am I drunk? And I put my hand over it and I don't notice in time. Um, am I sadistic? And I'm doing it uh, just to prove I can't. So I'm, I'm running a deep calculation in my mind to hold on to that screen. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm working really hard and I'm, and so then I've got other sensors that start going off or other external signals like sweat uh, and grimacing. 
uh, you know, and, and on and on and on. It, so in a lot of ways, you're, you're still talking about a computational input-output um, uh, scenario, but there are just so many more variables, we start to um, dismiss that it is yet still the same kind of computational structure and think of it as more magical um, or uh, uh, something else. And, and I don't think so. I think it is just a massively more complex computer. And uh, I think when you, know, when you look at some of the things DARPA is doing, they're starting to uncover that. Here's, a, here's an interesting example. I went to a, a DARPA workshop um, around basically analog to digital IO, which what they really meant was um, how do we build computers that can plug into the human body? And one of the things they showed off was some early lab work where they um, embedded sensors into um, the speech center of the mind and asked people to say words out loud. So they said, hello. And they got a, uh, a set of neurons firing off uh, against the statement, hello. But then they asked the person then to think the word hello using your internal voice. And lo and behold, the signals were very similar. In other words, they could read your mind. You could, using your internal voice, think hello and, um, and give the computer the same input. We were able to decipher what the human mind was doing uh, through some sensors. Now, it was early, very rough, very sort of brute force. Um, and there's a whole other subject about how much we'll ever really be able to wire up to the mind. It's just simply because um, at the end of the day, it's a three-dimensional structure. And if you have to put uh, leads on it, there's no way you can wire into it uh, effectively. You end up destroying the thing you're trying to read. Uh, but in these simple tests, it sort of proved um, how much the human brain itself was even uh, usable as uh, almost like a, a USB port. I'm, I'm, still, not, I'm still not, um, I'm still not drawing okay, the then. same analogy. Let me let me try a different because I, I I emphatically am not saying something in your word magical is going on. I think I what I'm trying to capture is the sense that the person experiences something. The person has an experience. There is a a self that. Um, experiences the world, and in the we'll call it, let's just say consciousness for that matter. It is it is a it is a, an aware self that exists that has these experiences with the world, whereas a computer has no no. So I, I there's a yeah, but there's isn't a, consciousness a, some form of playback? Some, well, let, let me let me set this up for you, and maybe we can we can go from there. There's a there's a classic problem uh, of this by Frank Jackson called the problem with Mary. And the setup is that there's this person named Mary who knows everything about color, like everything, like godlike knowledge of color, everything about photons, everything about cones in your eyes, every single thing there is to know about mm -hmm. color. And the, the, the setup is that she, however, has lived her whole life in a room and only seen black and white. One day she goes outside, she sees red for the first time. And the question is, did she learn something new? Did she learn something new? In other words, is experiencing something different than knowing something? And I think most people would say, yes, she didn't, she had never experienced color. And therefore, 
she learned this new thing and a machine cannot experience the world. Uh, and therefore, one would argue perhaps its intelligence is not anything like ours. It's that's, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating experience uh, or, or example, but um, wouldn't seeing the red for the first time be essentially the first time you've encoded that. So same thing with the computer. It hasn't seen red and therefore it doesn't, hasn't encoded. It's not part of its data set. It encodes it for the first time and, and it has to place that in context to the rest of its knowledge system. I, I don't know how um, we couldn't uh, still codify it in the way that I'm describing. Well, let's go on to consciousness because yeah, you, you started to... Um... <laughs> this is great. This is uh, some this is nice philosophical track you're running. Well, the reason I do it is not, it isn't supposed to be like, you know, senior year college up late at night with your friends. The, yeah, the thesis of mine is that all of this stuff that people have talked about, pin, you know, angels dancing on pinheads for, 10, uh, for all these thousands of years, we're all about to know, like it all matters. We're about to build systems. And if the system one day says, I feel pain, does it or doesn't it? I mean, and, you know, I think... I'm try and blow up the even the whole presumption. I don't think it matters. Well, I think I it matters think, to it. I we, well, I'm going to argue that we're unlikely to arrive at a machine where we either would ever hear it say "I feel pain" or we would care, because if it can arrive at that level of sophistication, it will likely have surpassed us in its utilization and the, its role and therefore it won't be offering those human-like analogies. It will be offering other kinds of fail information, other kinds of um, sensor alerts that won't be um, familiar to us as flesh objects. So fear, pain, those are, those are things that are very clear illustrations of, you might say, fault conditions a human encounters. Fear is a sort of prediction of bodily harm um, pain is, you know, the actual reflection on body harm, but the body of an AI system either doesn't exist in a, in a meaningful way, um, or it's it just not going to be the, the, the way we're interfacing with it. In other words, there's someone else who's concerned about the uptime of the machine and us interfacing with that AI system will never encounter those, those factors. So we won't encounter these human-like moments of reflection with them. Instead, we'll encounter its impression of us. Um, so it's, to me, much more interesting to think about how will they understand us um, and, and what's dangerous or enlightening about that. And to me, uh, it is the idea that, uh, so rather than these moments that are very human-like, the idea that it's superhuman, where it, let's say it's talking to a doctor and it knows the records of every single human being in the United States and therefore can come out with presumptions about someone's uh, pain in their knee. So our pain uh, in this example, that the doctor has no understanding of how it's coming out with this conclusion, unless it's of course a very familiar conclusion, but that's going to be of course boring and we're, that's not going to be a moment we're going to reflect on. Instead, it's just going to be affirm our own intelligence but there's going to be these other moments where it comes out with something we never expected or we thought is absolutely wrong. You know, think politics. Like 
here's the best tax structure for the United States. You know, politics is all about all kinds of decisions that are abhorrent to people. But if a computer comes out with something that's very non-intuitive, yet is influenced by a, a 1 million X um, level of um, background calculation, you know, something humans just could not uh, do. We won't know how to deal with that. That to me is the disconnect or the, the, that sort of human um, to AI reflection that's more interesting than what is their pain like versus our pain. But does that, does that make sense? Go ahead. I just want, yeah, sorry, just, I know that was kind of a huge digression, but it, to me. Well, no, I'm, I'm happy to engage it because you seem to be saying that we don't really have to worry about the issue of machine pain until we get an AGI and we're not going to have an AGI for so long. But that, that doesn't follow. Even an there, AGI. There are those not, who, who argue that the internet may be conscious already that people, that machines can be very simple. And if, if, if consciousness is an emergent property that comes out of complexity, then there could be latent consciousness already in machines. If this is there, there could be, but that's like, to me, the way I think about the question of God is it's silly to think of God as just a, a, a greater human-like thing. If there were a God, it wouldn't be thinking the way we think. And so the question of, is he mad at me for doing this, is a silly question. And to, in the same way, the idea of, is the internet conscious? It may be, in fact, in some definable way, conscious. But beyond the philosophical question, it's not that important. Um, so again, these questions of a general AI thinking along our lines is just, I, I don't think as important as, how will they understand us and how will we in interface with them? Because that's the scary part. They will well, be a million times more intelligent th than us on particular topics, yet maybe um, dangerously ignorant on adjacent topics. Uh, and that, that, that's where this, yeah, I don't know, that's, that's what keeps me up. Well, I would love, I would love to, to discuss that next. I, I would just say that humans, uh, up until the 90s in the United States, um, veterinarians, a standard of care, I am told, was to operate on animals, dogs and cats, without anesthesia, because the thesis was they couldn't feel pain. Uh, open heart surgery was done on babies up in, in the United States up until the 90s with no anesthesia, either because the thinking was their brains weren't developed enough to feel pain. And it, 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 is, it is, I think, behooves us to reflect on, on that. I, I think it behooves us to reflect on those things to say perhaps we weren't kind of thinking all of that through at the time, that those were kind of easy questions to avoid out of convenience. Maybe and so. and that, that, that just posing the question of, look, I don't know if plants are conscious. Um, I have no idea. Uh, but just asking the question, how would you know, um, in the end, all of these are really questions about us, right? I mean, in the end, the question that all of this reveals is, are we machines? And if we are machines that experience the world, if that's all we are, then are the machines that we make experiencing the world? And that's the question I'm trying to wrap my head around. I don't know that it's premature, as you're saying it is, that, because if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying by the time it matters, the vocabulary will have changed so much and the world will be so different and it will be so different that these questions are going to seem 
childishly naive and simple and provincial. They'll, maybe not childish. I, I don't really mean it that. It's they'll, they just won't be, and I, I don't think they should be, our primary concerns. To me, um, the idea of how do we interface with a growing set of machines that are smarter than us? How does society where um, you to me or me to my neighbor um, interface today on fairly normalized terms, um, you know, something that took thousands of years to break through to a, a more democratic, fair society. How do we continue to interface when um, we may in the future have asymmetrical access to these super machines and machines that not just help us get to work a little quicker than the next guy using ways, but have a million times more intelligence or a million times more financial wit uh, as an investor um, than the next guy? Um, how do we deal with normalization of intelligence? You know, when I make a decision and you make a decision, society benefits from the discord and uh, invention and fashion and you know, greater advancement society happens from those disagreements because ideally the better ideas break through, the bad ideas are, you know, tested and, and so forth. But when uh, we grow to be dependent on these systems and we all start to use the same system, you start to imbue society with the sort of same line of thinking. And there's a friction to breaking free from that, that, um, uh, super interesting you know let's just take like driving to work uh, since we're using that example the friction to drive your own path versus what the map is telling you to do in a new city is pretty high and if you were to take that kind of quantification and move that to everything you eat the jobs you take the people you date you know the friends you associate with um, and you know just about every little thing, uh, you know, Amazon's trying to help you get dressed in the morning. You know, does this look good on me? Um, uh, is it, fascinating. It's not only um, grows a dependence on a set of uh, proprietors, people who are driving behind these systems, but a dependence on each other in decisions that might normalize in a way we don't want, you know, that aren't, that isn't good for society. That I haven't, um, that, that's to me the philosophical, um, you know, the, the truly exciting space because it's, again, these questions end up being about us um, when we're imbued with AI as opposed to AI itself and will it feel pain? And so I, I guess I, I'm much less concerned about that guy versus um, the humanity uh, behind it. Fair enough. Let's do this. Let's chat about jobs in the near future, because I think that'll set up the context for this conversation, which you're talking about, which is how do we, when, when one segment of society can make better decisions than the other, and those better decisions compound, how do you deal with that? that? So, but let's start with just yeah. the immediate future. There's, there's three views about how automation and robots and AI are going to affect the job market. Just to set this up again, the first is that um, they're going to there's going to be a permanent group of people that are unprepared to add economic value in the world of tomorrow. We're going to be in like this permanent Great Depression where some sizable number of people can't get jobs or can't earn a living wage. 
And then there's a second one that says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. It's worse than that or better. Uh, every single person on the planet can, everybody, everybody, every job in the world can be replaced. It, don't, don't think you're something special. Machine's just going to zoom right past you too. And then there's a third one that says, no, 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 this is, this is all ridiculous. Every, every major technolo technological advance of the Industrial Revolution, even ones arguably as big as AI, like electricity and mechanical power, all they have done is boosted productivity of humans, which means uh, it boosts everybody's income. We all get wealthier and everybody does better off. And that's the entire story of why you live a better life than your great-great-grandparents, but you don't work nearly as hard as they do. So which of those three camps or a fourth one do you fall into? How do you see that all shaking out? All of the above, and I don't mean to chicken out, but just very asymmetrically. So what I believe is that the net product will ideally be a better society if we don't blow ourselves up in the process. So with that caveat, I think we are headed towards a much more ideal future. However, I think in the short term, we're in for some really ugly shakeup where AI first can displace a great amount of the population and then a great deal of the population is not um, prepared and even some of that population is not capable of moving up past a manual labor world. Um, there, there is not, there, there are not, not necessarily, I mean, the sort of pessimist, when I say pessimist in, me say, pessimist in me says, there aren't that many creative jobs. And if, and the best, uh, the most uh, suspect or uh, immediately replaceable jobs will be manual labor. Now, there's, but no, in, there's in sort sense, of secondhand the, arguments about robotics. Um, well, I want to hold it. I want to, I want to challenge ahead. that point. I don't, I don't know that that's demonstrable at all. Um, you know, even if they make, well, I was um, gonna add. Uh, even if they make a robot tomorrow that can mow a yard and everybody who mows a yard is out of work, they didn't make a robot that can plant a grape arbor. And then even yeah. when they make a grape arbor robot, they didn't make a robot that can uh, plant historically accurate gardens. I mean, yeah. you know, my, my plumber and my electrician, like the, they have to be so dynamic that they come out and they have to figure out, hmm, what do I do with this and all of that? I mean, I, I don't, right. so, I, I, yeah, I don't see I a robot go. like painting a curb. I'm looking out my window right now and there's like 400 things that need doing out there. Uh, and I don't know if a robot can do any of them. Yeah, okay, so um, fair enough. I'm, you, I was gonna get to this, I, I think the actual twist to the story is the presumption is yes, robotics um, with AI can re could replace everything. But, and like you started to suggest, the, the trick in that, and Uber to me is the sort of leading example of that, is the introduction of AI or intelligent software, because I don't think you need the full suite of AI to, to get there, um, in society usually means um, that we end up working for our machines uh, in, from the middle to the bottom of this, you know, the, the job structure in society. Um, you know, when I look at Uber, if you step back from it, it's basically, um, humans are the sort of last vestigial robot in the chain. They're being told by a piece of software where to drive. Uh, the money's being taken, uh, you know, all the commercial exchange is by the software. Um, the human is just the, the cheapest 
technical means of driving the machine around. Um, and I think if we look at a lot of labor, all of your examples, the plumber, um, software will increasingly take out um, the creative factors in those businesses, but the manual part of it, the sort of robot, um, rather than devising a humanoid robot to send in to do your plumbing, um, will, be human, will be humanity. You know, a trip to Japan can show you what it looks like when you have this really large population that is, um, in essence, sort of over, overemployed. Uh, in India, uh, I was visiting a client and there's somebody opening the door to the building. There was somebody literally there opening the door to the bathroom. And there was somebody there to hand me a little towel in the bathroom and it felt really weird. And, and it was a symbol of what happens um, when, and it's sort of getting off topic here, but when the cost of labor goes down and technology in the case of like Uber is fantastic for pushing that cost of labor down. So. Uh, I don't I, know. I, I don't know if, if that would be my interpretation of it. I mean, the, in the manual labor picture, I, I absolutely believe that, but there's a, I think there's some sh sunlight in that process, which is a lot of the jobs today that, have been sort of whittled down to um, just get it done. Things like a plumber um, become more artisanal jobs. We will hire people to do more interesting versions of it. I think humanity uh, in the greater sense of things has a real knack for taking something that normalizes and almost always blowing it up. Um, either for very bad reasons or, or, or good reasons. It, it just can't help itself to take anything that's stabilized and upset it. Um, and you know, you look at the way governments work, uh, it just it. So I think the idea of a, a sort of a, the world of Etsy based um, makers um, or creative um, technicians um, will emerge. And so uh, that, I think that will help. Um, but it's, I think that still the greater forces are um, many, many more people performing very robotic jobs. But it would seem just the opposite, right? Like once you can automate those jobs, you, you don't actually have. So I guess the, hmm. the analogy people always go to is farming, right? It used to be 90% of people farmed, now 2% in this country. And so if you look at that from one angle, you say, well, what are all those people going to do? They, they can't go into factories and like learn how to do, add value. And they did. They, they went into right. factories and then and we then, the factories. Right. And then they figured out what, it, every time you automate something, you lower the cost of it. And when you lower the cost, you open, like who would have ever guessed? They became 19, marketers. Right. Right. 1995. Somebody says, Hey, we're going to, we're going to use a common protocol. Uh, H hypertext protocol and uh, we're going to use Ethernet and TCP IP and we're going to connect a whole bunch of computers. Uh, who would have ever said, okay, that's going to create trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth. You're going to make Google, you're going to make eBay, you're going to make Etsy, you're going to make Amazon, you're going to make Facebook, you're going to, nobody, right? Like, but they, they created that much wealth, but they haven't distributed it um, nor distributed the same amount of labor that their historical counterparts did. So in each of these cases, it's required less and less labor. So I, I definitely believe in the idea of the overall value in the economy and the overall sort of comfort level uh, available to society. But society's ability to, to distribute that in a way that's fair 
is has a has, doesn't have a great track record in the 20th century. So you're you're arguing that in the 20th century, the average standard of living didn't go up. It did from 1900. But the delta between the bottom and the top also got worse. Well, so, nobody argues that technology hasn't made it easier to make a billion dollars. At least for some people, not for me. Uh, but that aside, the question is. Has the, the median income, the median standard of living of somebody in 1900, 1950 to 2000, I mean, that's a straight line. Of course. And of so course what, course. what is it in your mind that is different about 2000 to 2050? Between like what, 2000, yeah, I, like, I, I think if you look at those lines, um, the, the base line of like, what is the poorest person living like? Um, and what is the wealthiest person living like um, are no longer following each other. I mean, there's a, there's a great photo array showing um, what the poorest people in Africa and the poorest people in the United States live like, like where do they sleep? Um, what are the, what does a medium income look like? And, and it's interesting in that it's gone up uh, from the medium incomes upwards in a lot of places in the world but it's also interesting how poor the poor remain in the United States. Uh, and that, so that delta is what interests me. The fact that that line for the lowest income has stopped moving up. I, so I, I, I think looking back, it gives us some hope, but I don't think it, it, it gives us automatic confidence. I don't think it should. I think we should take, a warning from the level of income inequality that technology is driving. I don't think it's fair to just assume, well, it worked out in the past, so it should work out again, because it doesn't seem to be right now. There seem to be some very accelerating forces for those who have access to technology versus those who don't. And there, I do well, think, you know, in every technology, you said it right. When electricity came out, we thought this is going to be different. This is something to be concerned about. And yes, I may be one of those voices that I hope to be wrong, who's saying with AI, I think this is going to be different and we need to be very concerned about it. Well, let's assume all of, of let's put a pin in everything you're, you're saying and say it's all absolutely right. It's all going to unfold exactly that way. So what, with that context, what, let's get to that conversation we started to have, which is what do you do about it? Yeah. What do I, shit. I, that's, that's really tough. The universal income seems like a, just a path to inflation. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an, econo an economist. Um, you know, for, for my role as a designer in the world, we keep looking for ways uh, to try and express AI in the most uh, human moments in life. How to, um, for example, give us better control over the homes around us. Um, uh, but I feel in a lot of ways, sometimes as a designer at this moment in time, a little bit like, uh, what, um, you know, and I don't want to overstate this, but, uh, what, a little bit like the folks designing the nuclear bomb, uh, uh, may have felt like they were advancing technology in the interest of technology. And it was a sort of a passionate expression at the time, but at the same time, they could tell this is maybe not going to turn out right. Um, so and again, I sort of, that's an overstated comparison, but the idea here is that 
we in software and, and design are advance, helping advance um, the cost for a lot of products that ostensibly have um, great purposes for everybody in society. But a lot of them, let's say, you know, designing a better experience for Uber, um, don't seem to be netting out the way they should. And uh, when I look ahead, uh, let's take the work for cognitive scale. To me, that's you know, the most sort of relevant example. Uh, we're working with this company that makes AI systems, and it helps people like doctors or financial analysts um, think, right? It helps them answer questions. It helps them look ahead or look at large, large data sets and deliver to them things that they might not have realized or found, been able to find themselves. You know, it's essentially the needle in the haystack. And um, for each of those customers that employs those systems, they will be potentially thousands of times more powerful than the next guy. And that's a huge tipping force. Now, could it be that all of them adopt it uniformly and the, just the world of finance or the world of medical care all gets better at once, that'd be awesome. But at the same time, we're dealing with extremely competitive and a very non-democratic um, business environment. And so I don't see it necessarily happening that way. So that's the sort of concern side of the argument is we're giving a select few these really immense, excuse me, immense superpowers. Um, and what are the ramifications of that? Uh, you know, of course, I don't, I don't think practically the downside for the financial analyst or the doctor is anything particular to worry about. But if you imagine extending this out um, to average consumers, these things aren't going to be free. It's not like the U.S. government's going to distribute these tools. It's going to be something that people charge for, that people with better Internet access, better financial capabilities have access to, and it, it creates further imbalance. That to me is a sort of, um, you know, the downside to sort of the magic and that we're creating day to day. And so what do you do with that? Like, do you just kind of stew on it and then just plow, <laughs> plow forward? Uh, I don't like, know Like yet. feel you know, appropriately great, guilty about awesome it? But... No, yeah, it's an awesome question, Byron. I don't have a, a great answer. I wish I could just declare on this podcast the, the fight. Uh, but this is early enough in that that um, to try and declare an answer would be premature, would be uh, immature. Because well, I may be totally wrong and you may be right and I should just simply weigh in on a better future. And so I feel much like a lawyer is faced with defending someone. I suspect this guy might be guilty, but my job as a lawyer is to make sure he gets free. So my job as a designer is to create better human experiences even if some of them might not drive a net society improvement. Now, I don't not, know. I don't know. Somebody we don't might argue, guns. You yeah. know, we wouldn't, if something looks like a gun and its purpose is 99% to, you know, to deliver harm, then that's pretty easy for a designer to avoid. But the topic of AI has brought us closer to this question of design really driving the shape of society than ever. You know, for years, we designed things like toasters or music players, and they had sort of a, a natural place in society. You weren't really reshaping. You could make the toaster more fun. You could make the music player easier to use. Um, 
but they weren't really that tied to what it meant to be human. But to design a decision system really does start to get into the, the heart of what it means to be somebody. And, and I'm, I'm not sure as designers, we, we've been introduced to the tool set to think through that, you know, the social ramifications of the problem. Right. But is it really all that different again? So you had a time in history where some people could read and some people couldn't. And the people who could read, they were financially a lot better off, right? True. And then you had people who had education and people who didn't. And the people with education were better off. Yeah, you're, had, you're weighing into exactly the case I'm, I'm describing. It's in right. both those cases, society was crippled until they decided to offer education broadly, until books were cheaply printable. Society was well. Deeply, you could say I mean, crippled. It was. It was on a path, right? And then eventually, well, you got computers, and then well, I think about only before the printing press. Before the printing press, mm -hmm. the people who could not read could be told just about anything, if by the people who had the very few books read. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but but the thing is, is that technology in the past again always lowers the price the these things expand over time more people have access to them more people go to school more people are, are literate and and more people have computers now more people have access to the internet i mean like all of these things just show that it it eventually works right eventually like, yes I, and i go back to i, I think my uh, my statement i believe this eventually nets out to a beautiful society um but we're a, a much more um, a destructively capable society and today than we ever were. And all of those paths you talk about is sort of the path towards unified education, the path towards, you know, even introducing books involved lots of wars as, as, as the sort of asymmetry of, of people um, moving into various stages of modernity uh, occurred. Um, but they, there's only so much damage that they could do to each other. Today, the level of damage we can do to each other may surmount um, the, the complexity of getting through those similar stages. I'm saying that the near term is going to be painful, but the net opportunity in society is fantastic. I am on the optimistic side uh, with you. But I, I think don't know. You say that, but you're talking about building uh, nuclear weapons, if that's what you feel like you're doing. That is a yeah, it's, it's a pretty, yeah. Um, a I, I will say, though, that it's very interesting. This is a debate that uh, happened in this country a long time ago when, when, when people saw the Industrial Revolution coming. Uh, there used to be this idea that once you learned to read, you didn't need to go to school anymore. And there was a very vocal debate in the United States about post-literacy education, which I think is a really fun <laughs> phrase. And the United States, because it like deliberately decided everybody needs you know, more, education they uh yeah. they decide we became the first country in the world to guarantee high school education to everybody i want to switch gears a little bit you wrote a really fascinating article called ai's biggest danger is so subtle you might not even notice it and the thesis of it um in, in a sentence and correct me if i'm wrong is that it, behind all artificial intelligence as a programmer and behind every programmer is a set of biases either deliberate or un, you know uh, explicit or implicit either things they know or they don't know and those get coded into these systems and you don't even notice it yeah is that been, the thesis that's a good that's a good summary there's um, and there's been a lot written about this since uh, I may have been a little early on it because I thought the reaction was um, was interesting uh, that the uh, 
yeah, I mean, paraphrasing the, the overall summary is, uh, and, you know, working with cognitive scale, one of the things we're doing um, that's most interesting, and they're, they're facing this issue of every time they build these systems, they're one-offs. And most AI systems tend to be these one-offs. Um, and it's very difficult to tune the, the, um, the intelligence. It's, in other words, it's a dark art. We don't know exactly how these machines are coming out with their conclusions. We're, we're pouring so much complexity into these agents uh, and the models uh, and the processors that are, are moving, uh, transforming information, that it's hard to predict how one set of questions or one set of inputs might come out of the, at the end of that uh, uh, process. And um, so, you know, we're just testing them against um, sample cases, but sample cases don't give you a, you know, a total assurance of, of how the system's working, right? You, you're just, it's like your match example, right? 99% of the time somebody screams, so you, system, you assume that that's wired right, but 1% of the time somebody's really happy about that fire and, um, and the machine breaks, right? Um, so to me, what's, what's interesting, I'm sorry, digressing. <laughs> uh, to me, what's really interesting is that uh, there are a lot of commercial interests who would like, uh, let's say my drive home, since we've used that example again, um, who would like me to drive a certain way because they want me to go buy their restaurant or buy their business. Um, and it only takes the slightest bit of a twist to that data to slowly mold a population, uh, you know, whether it be a driving population or a, an eating population or a buying population uh, to behave a certain way. And normally these things are externalities so we can, they're easier to legislate, right? Like how much signage are you allowed to put up in a city? Um, what kinds of things are you allowed to say in an advertisement? And uh, those are things attempting to shape our minds, right? But when you have direct decision systems, if you go back to what I was describing, we're becoming more and more sort of like the bicameral mind, inseparably associated with the digital systems that advise us, that those things are now, you might say, black boxes in our minds uh, trying to get us to eat uh, at McDonald's or drive that certain way or invest in this certain stock. Um, and uh, much more difficult to legislate, much more difficult to police, to even discover that it's happening to us. Uh, and so that's, that's the concern. And there's very little um, early uh, kind of rule sets or policy around how to protect against that. We're building these systems at so, incredible rate. Right. So you're, of course, familiar with the European efforts to basically say you had the right to know why that artificial intelligence made the suggestion about something to you, if it affects your life, like. Yes, 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 yes. And so exactly. A, is that possible? And B, is that good? And C, what's going to be the ultimate outcome of that debate? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I applaud Europe's attempt to do this. It's a bit ham-fisted because the delta between uh, these technical systems and the politics of legislating it is too great. They, they just don't know what they're dealing with. So they tend to do it in kind of brute force ways. Um, 
the companies are still young enough that they're not they're on the wrong side of the argument they're, they're just trying to get them out there in the quickest most you know brute force way um, and less concerned about kind of the lasting impacts um, and uh, I think as designers and you know the, the developers creating these systems um, there's there's not enough in the stack you might say it's actually one of the things we're trying to do uh, one of the goals in the UI work with um, cognitive scale and, and sorry I'm not really trying to you know pitch you hard cognitive scale I'm just saying this is where our direct experience lies is um, we have these problems that are right in line with this conversation is uh, for example we come out the system comes out with an insight like tells a doctor hey there's these eight patients um, you should contact because there's uh, I believe they're gonna have an asthma attack and of course the doctor looks and goes why do you think that you know are you you know that doesn't make any sense to me as a human I can't see why so we have to give them a quick um, we have to unfold the argument quickly and in human terms, even though the computation that might have arrived at that conclusion is much denser than most humans can comprehend. It involves a larger data set or a larger computed set of circumstances than is easily told. And so the design of those problems is really tough. Um, and it's just very, very early in, in, uh, in that process. Um, and again, part of it's because there's not enough in the stack, you might say. Uh, you think about, you know what I mean by the stack, early operating systems, the, you know, the, the underlying firmware that talked to the hardware, the, 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 the data management system, and the applications more entwined as a single entity. And of course, we've eventually built these as many, many independent elements stacked on top of each other that allowed programmers to edit um, one of those layers without destroying the function of the whole system and today in AI it's a similar problem there's too much of a of a um, combined stack and so auditing um, how the system is thinking and where did it find these conclusions what data is it drawing on is really tough uh, especially if you're not a programmer right this is a, it's still the domain of a lot of um, specialists a lot of scientists but if you're just a you know, a financial company or a hospital chain um, trying to use these systems. You're really, you're expert in your field, like healthcare, but you're not expert in AI. It's, it's really tough to employ these systems and trust them. You might say, understand why did you come out with that conclusion? You also, you also wrote a piece called computers will prove to be more creative than most humans. And so, What's your thesis there? And before you answer that, what is creativity? Yeah, uh, there's a, so let's start with uh, a simple, um, we'll call it a theory, which is just call it the Mick Jagger theory. And Mick Jagger's a, you know, he's a rock musician, you know, Rolling Stones. And if you look at Mick, he's not that pretty. Uh, he doesn't on any sort of technical sense sing that well. And um, he dances really kind of funny. Uh, but something about how he assembles all that uh, has endeared us to him. And it's this force of will that makes him in design terms, a sort of a winning design, you know, and a lot of rock and roll represents that. So rock and roll turns out to be a great example of 
that kind of decision factor in humanity. And you learn this in product design. It's like you could be very technical about what your audience wants and still utterly fail. It is quite often a very singular human expression, um, very set of accidental factors that turn out a magical design. So to that end, um, what I was trying to propose was the computer through its willingness to try things um, and non-obvious and its ability to sift through more ideas than we could um, may one day lend to something we really define as creativity, delight. So creativity is often a sense of, uh, is sort of the nexus between what we think we need and what we didn't expect to see. And we tend to register that's, oh, that was creative. It's, it's both suitable, I can't imagine using that or enjoying that, yet I didn't think that was gonna be the answer. And um, given that nexus, I think um, computing, especially sort of this intelligent processing of possibilities is going to be extremely powerful. And what are, the reason I wanted to introduce the topic is not really to threaten designers, even though that sort of ended up being the, um, the quotable part of it, but to suggest this safe zone that a lot of people were talking about at the time that I wrote that, that you know, creative fields of humanity are safe from AI and that it's really just people doing manual labor um, is, is, is wrong. That there are lots and lots of creative tasks that will be um, uh, highly performant um, through an AI system. And, it's, and it may be first through symbiosis, putting a, you know, a designer and a computer together. Um, which is happening to a degree now. In fact, it worked with um, a London 3D software company that helps people like um, shoemakers go through a, uh, a range of shoe possibilities. And one of the things the software is really good at is arraying out all of these possibilities um, of texture, uh, materials, color. And then the human, of course, has a really easy job of just picking. Oh, I think that looks cool. And it, it helps them in their process, so you might say it's making them more creative. Well, eventually, the computer can have enough um, information to make some of those choices on its own. And maybe not in that exact circumstance, because fashion is sort of maybe the last bastion of elusive human behavior. Um, uh, fashion is often nonsensical, but it works explicitly because of that. Uh, but in so many other fields, they're sort of near styles of creativity. Um, I think that's very possible. Well, I have two more questions for you. Um, the first one, you know, you, you started at the very beginning of this talk to talk about we may get an AGI sometime, in the, or we probably will sometime in the distant future. I'm really intrigued by the fact that, you know, recently we had Elon Musk saying, we're going to get one really soon, and or relatively soon, and it's going to be bad for us. And then Mark Cuban kind of threw in his lot, yeah, it's going to be kind of bad for us. And then you get um, Zuckerberg, who says, no, 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 it's going to be way far out. It's going to be good for us. And you get Andrew Ng, who says, you know, worrying about that kind of stuff is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. And that when you really distill it all down, you get the range of people who are, you know, have some arguable case that they have, you know, a relevant opinion they predict sometime between five and 500 years 
So my two <laughs> questions are, hey, why do you think that is? Like in any other field of life, you know, if you ask a, 10 astronauts, when are we going to get to Mars? It's going to be, you know, 20 to 50 years. Or so. It's not going to be five to 500. And so why do you think that these people are so far apart in what they think? And then second, where are you in that? Where am I? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think most of those answers are um, more telling of the person than the topic. You know, AI is very political right now. It is. Um, the, and all of those folks are very much as an industry, you know, they're not scientists. They're, they're as an industry very vested in, in the idea. So, for example, um, Mark's answer was, I think, driven by his desire to sound and be an optimistic voice in tech. Facebook profits from technology optimism. Um, they need people to feel safe around tech for Facebook to, to continue to grow. Whereas Elon Musk is much more about infrastructure. Um, and so for him, anything, you know, he talks about in tech needs to sound big and amazing, right? T trips to Mars and talking about AI in that way makes sense. Um, I, I still, i go back to, I think the idea of talking about general AI, the kind that, uh, the average person would recognize is it's a silly conversation. It's not, not let, not likely to happen for a hundred years in the way that, you know, you would maybe think to ha sit down and have a beer with it. Maybe that will never happen. I think we'll, we'll get to the point where AI is much more um, life changing, dominant in our lives uh, way, way before then. So the question will, become moot, like asking about overpopulation on Mars, not because it's taking that long. So I agree with the guy. Who, so yeah, I know, I don't know if this answer is going to, going to be crisp enough to, to net out in one line of statement, but I agree with the guy that it's not coming anytime soon, but I do say very strongly, and I, I'm seeing it directly with the clients we're working with that AI that is dramatically impactful to the shape of society and how individuals think of themselves, and how they interact with other individuals, how they compete in business and in social means, is going to dramatically reshape and potentially upend society in not too long of a future. And I say that as in, it's happening now, so it's already started, um, and this, you know, you might say for the next 20 years, it'll be pretty dramatic and increasingly dramatic. Um, but I don't know if there's a sort of a gating moment, like, you know, all of these people, this question seems to sound like turn, like you're turning a timer um, on, on some toast. This isn't that. Um, the toast doesn't just pop up out of the oven and say, we've got AI now. We have it today. We'll have more of it tomorrow and we'll have more of it the next day. And um, you can already see technology, uh, sorry, society reshaping to competitive capabilities around intelligent systems. Uh, so I think it's here. Maybe that's my sort of net answer. I'll put you down for 17 years. Um, so my final question is this. You seem to obviously be a guy that thinks about this stuff a lot. Um, 
and you've made a few uh, references to science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you read, watch, consume science fiction, uh, that there's, there's some view of the world that you think, yeah, that could happen. Uh, you know, that is something that they kind of had it right, I think. Is there anything that's kind of influenced your thinking in that, from that genre? Uh, honestly, I, I, when I read science fiction, it tends to be a little more... Um, I thought some of the thinking going on in the fifties was really interesting, like Philip K. Dick's work. And um, I know some of it that's much more magical or dealing with, um, you know, uh, the apocalyptic uh, side effects, but uh, connected to that, the, the, the vision in Blade Runner, while, you know, skip, skip the Android question, the society that you saw in Blade Runner, and skip the sort of perpetual rain. I'm not necessarily going to worry about those things. Um, we get into this long ecological question, which I have no expertise in. The, the part that was really interesting is society is built upon itself. And, and to me, that's the most pertinent part of trying to envision the future. As a designer, um, you know, fashion piles up on to itself and refers to itself. Um, uh, architecture does the same thing, and not only in, in terms of style, but literally, we build onto our past. We upgrade buildings, we renovate them, um, and in the same sense, um, so social behavior uh, uh, does the same. So, yeah, to me, my influence or my sort of closest reference would be looking at that fa- those aspects of of what we see in Blade Runner is we'll see a lot of society that is grappling with very historical attitudes um, about who we are as individuals, how we should associate with each other, how the economy is supposed to work, yet um, trying to retrofit into that some very, very dynamic new realities. And I don't think they're like better toasters. And that's the part where I think maybe you and I disagree strongly is I don't think like in these historical analogies, we came up with a better tractor. I think these new layers of technology reshape us in a way that's um, not that comparable to the past. Um, so rather than better tractors, we have greater minds, um, greater reach with our minds. And this, that part, um, yeah, that part's I think it's the most interesting. So the, then, then to close on that, Mm-hmm. 300 years ago, William Shakespeare lived and wrote, and, and he wrote these plays that we still watch today, we still read today. They still make, you know, movies with Leonardo DiCaprio in them. Uh, because everybody, 300 years later, in a world that has changed as dramatically as you could imagine, people still know an Iago and uh, Lady Macbeth and still have love triangles and still have family rivalries and still have all of that stuff, like you, you, you watch Shakespeare because you just still recognize those people, not because it's an alien world, but it's like, I get that. So is your thesis yeah. that in 50 years, Shakespeare will no longer make sense to us? That we- Oh, are, no, no. So, so we really aren't gonna change, are we? That would be history building on itself. We will change in some layers. So we may tell a story about Romeo and Juliet um, where they get to know each other only in their minds and have yet to ever meet. Uh, 
but um, the story fundamentals are the same, right? The, the human passions are the same. I think that's, and if you, you know, I loved, uh, I loved the latest Romeo and Juliet um, from, uh, what's his name, the Australian uh, guy does. Uh, anyway, he, he did that really just super hip uh, interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. And, and he changed a whole lot about it. You know, it was real street culture uh, focused, but um, uh, it was still the same story underlying it. And so, yeah, I do believe that part, sort of human passions, um, about finding love, finding each other, understanding yourself, understanding the world around you, being important to the world, you know, having some, some sense of relevance. Those things are, are uh, persistent. They're sort of million-year-old truths about us. But how that happens, I do think, is critically uh, fundamental, the sort of struggle to identify yourself may uh, today involve um, a lot of subsystems that aren't flesh, right? Uh, the means of understanding the world may come with an argument about access uh, to a, t a layer of technology. So, yeah. Well, let's leave it there. It was a fascinating hour, Mark. I hope I can entice you to come back and I feel like there's still a whole lot of ground we didn't cover. Oh, yeah. yeah, there is. And uh, it's fun talking about the philosophical stuff. It's um, And uh, glad to disagree with you on some of those things. It makes it fun. I would like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Argo Design. Argo is a product design consultancy, a growth partner to entrepreneurs, and an incubator of new experiences. Argo works with clients who share one common trait, the drive to create something innovative and valuable. Schedule a consultation or studio visit at Argo. Just email info at argodesign.com.